Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Bridge Podcast today. Today, I'm super excited about this episode. I have Mitchell Wright on from Lambda School. I used to work at Lambda School before I started doing this, and they have scaled further than just about anyone, I think. Maybe they have the record for scaling on no-code. So I was part of the team to migrate off of the no-code stack, but Mitchell spearheaded laying the foundation. So I haven't even gotten this full story, and I'm super excited to actually dig into everything with him today. Um, If you don't know about Lambda School, here's a little bit of a primer. Lambda is maybe the hottest startup in the edtech space. They give you a CS education that's free until you get a job, and they've changed thousands of lives of people who, in some cases, were just getting by economically to making six-figure engineering salaries nine months later. A lot of people have one or two case studies like that. Lambda has dozens. It's truly amazing how many lives they've changed. It was one of the main reasons why I joined. And yeah, I'm really excited to, to share this story by having Mitchell on today to talk about the, uh, the no-code stack he built. So Mitchell, awesome to have you on the podcast today. Really excited to hear uh, all of the stories of you just laying the foundation on Lambda's no-code stack and, uh, and scaling it. Even though I was at you know, Lambda working with you, I never, never heard the full story behind everything. Yeah, no, excited to be here and talk about it. It's, uh, it's been a bit of a wild ride. Yeah, so start off, like, it'd be great to just know, like, when, when did no-code enter the picture at Lambda? And, like, how did, how did that whole process work? Like, what, what was going on there? Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting because Lambda School, we had engineers on staff, but those engineers were actually all hired to be instructors for Lambda School. So it actually was a little while before we even hired any engineers to help us build any kind of uh, infrastructure or tooling. And, and because of that, we, we had to keep building things. We had to build infrastructure for the school. And so no code was, was kind of the, the thing that Lambda School was built on from the get-go. So, you know, it was, it was kind of just when, when Austin started it, he was using tools that were off the shelf that he could easily, easily set up in order to, to run the school, to get people in, to um, manage the day-to-day aspects of it. And so it was, it was really just an organic thing that happened. Um, and, and as we started to grow, you know, as I came on board and other people came on board, we just, we just grew from there and expanded the tools we were using. Some tools we switched out, some tools um, we, we added in new tools. So yeah, it was a really, really organic thing. I don't think it was a conscious decision necessarily, but the idea was, hey, we need to do these things. What's the fastest way for us to do those that will work for us for right now? And let's just do it that way. And and so that was that was kind of the genesis of, of where no code came from at Lambda School. So it wasn't really like a like a specific thing we wanted to do. Uh, it was more of a thing that we did out of necessity. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like that's how most people start. It's just kind of a solution to a problem. You don't think like, oh, I'm going to build on no code. There's all these little pieces that you can just like keep adding to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So like, what were the pieces that you guys picked initially? Yeah. So uh, initially it was, it was really simple. We just kind of were using Typeform for the application for Lambda School. And you know, that was feeding into some Google Sheets that was feeding into Airtable. And 
we would run our entire admissions process kind of off that stack of just Typeform, Airtable, Google Sheets, uh, Zoom. And we initially were doing interviews. So someone would fill out their application and then we would, we would based on the application, send them a link to a Calendly where they'd schedule a Zoom. And then we'd ask them questions and we'd put that information into, into Airtable or Google Sheets based on their answers and whether we thought we should admit them. And so that was, that was the initial stack that we used. So it was really simple, uh, but really easy to get up and running. And the nice thing about all those different tools is they were really easy for non-technical users to go in and, and use. So we had the person who was actually running the admissions process and doing the interviews, she would actually go in and as, as we go through interviews, we would decide, you know, these questions aren't good enough. We need to change these and we need to change these questions in the application. And she could actually go in and do all that herself. We didn't have to have an engineer go in and, and rewrite code and, and change up steps, that kind of thing. So it allowed us to iterate really quickly early on and get the kind of information that we needed to make sure we were admitting the right people in the admissions process at Lambda School. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, this, this, the speed of, uh, of iterations just are so much, so much substantially faster that way than like you're writing custom code on a, on an onboarding flow. Um, so, so what was the point at which that stack broke down? Like when did you hit the limit on that stack and then like do a no code to no code migration? Yeah. So it was really, I mean, there wasn't a point where it all broke down at once, you would say, um, Mm -hmm. it kind of was pieces at a time. So the first thing that I think kind of broke for us was type form. And this, this was mainly due to the amount of applications that we were getting at Lambda school. So there were, it wasn't an issue with type form on the front end, but on the back end, when we would go in to do searches for uh, people to look at the things they'd put on their application, if we wanted to do that within type form itself, the, the back end, it wouldn't load responses. We couldn't do any of the filtering within Typeform itself. We had to export any of any of those responses if we wanted to look at them. And so it wasn't a huge deal because we were using Zapier to take the Typeform responses and put them into Airtable, and, and we could look at stuff on Airtable. But um, we wanted we wanted to we wanted to change that a little bit and and maybe have a little bit more of a branded experience when someone is filling out an application rather than sending them to a Typeform hosted page. So that was kind of one of the big first changes that we made was we we actually used WordPress to um, set up an application experience, a little bit of an application portal. So we used WordPress and we used Gravity Forms and we also set up our pre-coursework inside of WordPress using a tool called LearnDash. So WordPress is, is actually a very interesting tool that I think a lot of people don't associate with, with the no-code space as much, but there's so many different plugins and, and, and tools that people have built on top of the WordPress uh, platform that you can do a lot with WordPress to actually build out uh, what would be maybe a little bit more custom, a custom thing, just have a lot more flexibility than you might have with some of these other tools. So that was, that was one of the first transitions that we made and and I think you you kind of know this from from being at Lamb school but we would we would sort of shift from yeah one no code tool to another to another as as things would start breaking and we needed more flexibility and to be able to do more things 
Uh, another one that we did was, was implementing a second workflow automation tool uh, similar to Zapier called Trey. And Trey is a little bit more difficult to use from a, a user experience perspective, but it's a little bit more powerful as well. One thing that I know Zapier doesn't do very well is if you want to pull back a collection of multiple objects or something like that and iterate over them and do something to each of those objects, that's one place where Zapier is not quite as strong, but Trey does that really well. And so we had we still use both of them, but we have a little bit different use case for each of them. So in cases where we needed to pull a lot of objects and, and iterate over them with a lot of branching logic, that's where we go in and start using Trey versus Zapier. So there's it really has been an iterative overtime process where we'll we'll either replace a tool um, as we start started to scale, or we'll add in another tool to the stack that is a little bit better for a specific use case that we started running into. That's interesting. Yeah, the the thing that the pattern that I've seen across all kind of no code scaling situations is that and migrations is that the reason that people shift is either a lack of features, um, lack of collaboration tools, um, no professionals you can hire, or the infrastructures can't support like the amount of users or the or, like the, the rates at which you're calling the APIs. And it sounds like in both of the cases that you're describing when you shifted from type form and, and then it introduced Trey to complement Zapier or like feature, it was like feature limitations. You didn't have the right feature that you needed to like keep, keep growing. Yeah, early on it was definitely a little bit of a feature of a feature thing, um, and then over time it has become more of a of a collaboration or a um, like a workflow thing, right? As we as we started to Im- introduce more engineers into the company, and engineers have a fairly common workflow that they use, right? They'll have a development environment, they'll have a staging and testing environment, and then they'll move stuff into production, and that's one thing that that you see missing from a lot of tools, I think, is that that structured flow. Uh, Zapier, for example, is one where we've had that issue where when we want to make updates to a Zap, what is the right way for us to do that? And we're still working through that process, but Zapier doesn't really have a concept of this is a a staging Zap and we're making our changes and we're testing them and then we're going to put this live into production. It's kind of always in production. And so when you make changes, it'll turn it off and then so, so do you just try and make your changes really fast to turn it back on um, and have a little bit of downtime, or do you clone the zap and and make and make the changes to that zap and then just sort of turn the one off and turn the one back on? Um, and so those are those are kinds of the the decisions that you have to make right now in the no code space. But I think that as these tools become more robust and as more technical users start using them to increase the speed at which they're able to ship things and make changes. Uh, we'll start to see some of those tools adapt into those types of workflows. And I think there's there's actually some tools like um, uh, what's there's one that does this really well. I'm trying to think of the name. It just it's like a collaboration really, feature. Yeah, yeah, with a, with like a little bit more of a of a user interface for technical and non technical people. Um, oh, standard library, right? Standard library, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, you yeah. know, of course, you know. <laughs> I yeah, yeah I, they, I remember they do a seeing really it. good job with that. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's it's um, I remember seeing it for the first time, and I was like, like I, I was like, oh my god, this is it! Like you can push the exact same feature in either code or no code, and I'm like, 
the biggest the biggest challenge that I've just seen with using like like code and no code is that is that it's like how do you how do you get it to make it so the ops teams and the engineers can work together and like the engineers don't want the GUI but then the ops teams don't want the code so it's like what do you do and standard library is the first one that I've seen where it's like truly integrated like with Webflow you can export the code but like every time I've tried to do that, the front end devs see it and they're just like, yeah, I need to rewrite all this. Like it just, (laughs) 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 but yeah, standard library is super, super interesting in that regard. Yeah. Um, They're doing, they're doing a really good job of bridging that gap between the technical and the non-technical users. Um, I think, I think some of their, their stuff could even be simplified a little bit more um, for the non-technical side uh, of the house, but but they're they're one of the first ones I've seen that are doing a good job with that, and that can can get the buy-in from the from the CTO from the the engineering side of the house um, to actually adopt this kind of tool because you'll sometimes see yeah. some pushback from from engineering on using these kinds of tools because they don't have as much control over them and and sometimes they don't quite understand how they work or or that doesn't fit into their normal workflow, right? With like a staging and development and production environment. And so they're a little hesitant to adopt some of these tools. Totally, yeah. Like the correlation that I've seen, I mean, we we saw this at at 60 too. Like I remember um, brought our our technical co-founder on and he was just like, what the hell did you guys rig together here? This is crazy. And we're like, yeah, isn't it cool? And, And then he was responsible for the tech and he's just like, I don't, I don't trust any of this. Like, I just want to get rid of all of it. And we, we went through that process and then had to like kind of backtrack because then it was like, like I couldn't push features. None of the other ops people could like push features easily. We like lost our analytics. Um, and, and then it was like, Hey, why can't you push this feature in like, you know, three hours? Why does it have to take like three days? And he's just like, it, it's just how it works in like code land. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you yeah. lose a little bit of the speed there. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean with like the, the collaboration tools, I think, are like generally the biggest reason why no code, no code doesn't scale as far as it can. It's like, it's like everything you listed, like the Git style workflows. Like none of these tools are really investing in that. And it, yeah, I mean, it's like one of the things that I'm I'm hoping gets like doubled down on with like the, these kind of stories of like, all right, when when do you have to migrate and, um. Yeah, just the lack of, of collaboration features is, is really tough. Um, and it's funny because when you're telling, telling the story about how Zapier, you just have, there's no like staging, you just push the, the feature. I remember um, seeing someone give up <laughs> at uh, just someone at some point is giving a demo a tray and they're like, oh yeah, to like push the thing to production, like, you know, you're, you're rolling and there's like, like all these, uh, all these API requests going, you just kind of have to sling it just like, go in and yeah. just, just make the change <laughs> and um, kind of like yolo <laughs> let's do this yeah and, and i remember the engineer <laughs> i remember the engineer on the call was just like that is not funny <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's it, it, i mean you get to a point where that becomes not a viable method of of making changes to your product <laughs> yeah. and how it works, right? So I totally For understand sure. that. Um, in the early days, you could probably get away with it a little bit more, but that's where, yeah, that, that's where some of these tools need to really um, make some of those changes and, and implement some of these features to to really take it to the next level. And I think that it's something we're going to see for sure. Yeah, totally. I, I that happened sooner rather than later. Um, I was hoping it would happen like five years ago when I was using this stuff and it just... 
I'm like, well, why hasn't this stuff happened? Why, why haven't we evolved? But it makes sense that people are going for like, you know, kind of the prototyping early, early stage. Um, when I say people, I mean like no code platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious. So like the whole story of like Airtable starting, how did that all start out? And I guess um, even like broad, broadening, broadening the topic from there, like were there any other scaling obstacles that you had with like any of the other tools past um, kind of the stage you were just talking about with like, like Zapier, Trey, WordPress, or was it, or at that stage, was it kind of like they were, they were more stable and you didn't have to like migrate from no code tool to no code tool? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's a great question. We, Airtable was one that we adopted a little bit early and, and I think this was, this was still a little bit early in Airtable's life of being, being a tool or, or really getting some of that traction that I feel like they have now. And yeah. we, we picked it because it, it, it was one step beyond a spreadsheet where it's that middle ground of a, of a spreadsheet and a database. And it, it's a little bit more powerful than a spreadsheet. It's got more built-in functionality to build tables and, and connect tables, reference those. And so you can build a little bit more of a relational database model. But you still have the really nice UI that a non-technical user can go in and can understand how to use it, can make updates, and can even, even add, add to it, which, which is something that we kind of ran into, right? And this, this is something that I think a lot of people who've never done any type of studying of code um, run into when they're building stuff in any no-code tool that has a backend is they don't understand relational database theory and they don't understand normal forms and, and that kind of thing. And so what you end up with are these, these database tables that are just really wide rather than a lot of tables that are all connected to each other, which is, which is probably a little bit more scalable and and I think that that's one issue that people run into as they as they start scaling as they start having success and, and getting traction with any of these products that they're building on no code tools is they've not architected things on the back end in a, in a way that's super scalable and and you start running into these issues and that's that's what happened to us with Airtable is the the initial people who did the the building of it was was myself and and um, I guess who's now the president of Lambda School, Caleb. And uh, Caleb actually used to be a, a junior high, I think, a junior high school teacher, but then went through a code boot camp and um, worked at a code boot camp and then worked at Apple. And um, so he has he has technical background. He, he understands those kinds of things. I did a master's in information systems. I took a databases class. We had to build uh, database diagrams, that kind of thing. So I understand that okay. And so as we would build this, it was okay. But then when we started handing it over to the operations people, they would say, hey, I need this extra field. I need this this extra lookup. I need this, this, and this. And and they would start adding to the tables and they would get really big. And and then we we were just enrolling a lot of students. and, And as the students were going through school, they just generate a lot of data. Every day they were submitting forms letting us know how they did on their projects for that day and how they were feeling about school and and there were other other there was other data being generated and and it was really filling up these airtable bases um well this airtable base it's all single base right and 
it, it, it hit a point where when the operational people would want to go in and, and look something up or they needed to edit a record in something, it would take five, 10 minutes for, maybe not 10 minutes, but it would take like five minutes for, yeah. for this view to load. And they're just sitting there watching this little spinner go round and round while their table base is loading. And uh, it, it became a problem where it was really hampering the speed at which we could move because the operations people were spending so much of their time just waiting for for Airtable views to load. So that was that was one of the big things that that we ran into. But but we you know we got to a, a place where the school was doing really well. We were enrolling a lot of students, students are going through the class, we were able to raise uh, raise a couple rounds all all on Airtable with Airtable being essentially our main database. And I think that's pretty pretty awesome. And yeah we started so, so to try and fix that, we, we obviously were like, okay, well, we just need to switch over to, to code, but that was not, that's not just an easy thing you can do, right? It's, it takes a lot of work to make sure that we're transferring the data model over, but this data model built in Airtable, I'd, we decided it wasn't the right data model. It was one that had kind of grown organically. It hadn't been planned out beyond the very basics, um, hadn't been planned out very well. So what we what we did first was we actually got in touch with Airtable support and they they did some consulting with us with some of their engineers and said, well, let's look at your bases, let's see what you've how you've built them, what you've done, and see if we can replace some of the stuff or or change some of the way that you've built these, delete some of these things so that it will load faster. And you know, generally thinking, generally speaking, the the biggest things that they told us to avoid were a lot of views, which everyone was always going in and making these custom views of different, uh, different uh, tables on the base so that they could do their own filtering and, and see what they needed to see, only see certain columns, et cetera. And so we, we went through and we said, hey, we're going to just delete all these views if you don't need them. And the other one that, we, that they said that, we were doing um, that was causing a lot of this load was was columns that changed based on a current time. Um, so every time it loads, it's calculating and it's saying, well, what's the current time? Does this column need to be updated? Is this column value going to change now? Um, so, you know, any view that was updated in the last five minutes or if it was uh, a column that was something like joined Lambda School in the last 24 hours. Um, those are just going to have a big impact because they're being recalculated by Airtable every five minutes or every 24 hours. And and when we're trying to load it, it's it's trying to do, trying to recalculate these things. And so yeah. that's those those were some of the big things that we did. So we went through. We we tried to say, are these columns necessary, or is there a different way that we could that we could do these? Um, are these views really all necessary, or could we just have one view that is the filter view and then these couple other views that we need to look at on a regular basis, but we'll just delete everything else because people aren't even touching these ones. And so that helped for a little while. Uh, we also ran into a problem of just having too many records in a base. And so there, there you do reach an upper limit and I can't remember off the top of my head what it was, but we started having to export the data from the base and then just delete it from that base so that we would make space for new data to, to show up, which 
is something you don't want to have to do, but our engineering team uh, yeah. builds a lot of custom <laughs> Airtable tools uh, to make some of that stuff easier. But that was another one that was kind of, we, we just had to buy ourselves time so that we could transition some of this stuff off, off of Airtable. And I know you, you, you were probably around during a lot of this time, so you know a little bit better how some of this transition stuff happened. So I won't go into that right now, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it, I remember it was, this very well. <laughs> yeah. It was very much of like, how can we buy ourselves some time to get the engineering stuff done to build something that's a little bit more scalable. And so we had to do some of these workarounds and I think, totally. you know, it, looking back, it's, it's kind of a trade-off. We were able to move fast and build fast and, and get stuff done, but it did, it did cause us to have to slow down a little bit later on. So that's, that's something you have to worry about. But at the same time, if, if Lambda School hadn't been successful and we hadn't grown, then the, the premature optimization wouldn't have been worthwhile either. So totally. it's a little bit of a trade-off that you have to think about of, well, does it even matter if I build this with code or no code if no one ever uses it? So what's going to be the fastest way for me to to get there and to validate whether this is going to be a good idea anyway. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, it seems like if you're going to, if you're trying to validate an idea, no code is just the way to go because yeah. Why would you build a whole, like a perfect database model for something that you have no clue whether or not it's going to work or like how it's going to evolve. Like pretty much every project I think any founder does, they start it and then it's like reality is like a slight, slight bit different than like their initial thought so it's like yeah i mean it, it seems like no code is just the best way to do that whether you're an engineer or, or whoever um or, or in most cases yeah and i think that's that's a big piece like you said is that things are going to evolve and change beyond what you thought they were going to be and so i yeah. think that there are there are ways you can do it with code right like ruby on rails is a great framework for getting something up and running and working fast um and so a lot of developers will will default to that, uh, which I think is totally fine, right? And so I think a lot of times people get stuck in this like code versus no code thing. And it's really like you were saying, what is the fastest way that I personally can get this up and running so I can validate it? And for mm-hmm. a lot of people, that is no code. But for some engineers, code, code is probably just a fine answer, right? You, you slap bootstrap on for your UI, you you use Ruby on Rails and you, you've got the basic functionality for your, um, for your database and, and everything already built in and you add in whatever unique features that are the MVP, the, the, the value prop for your, for your specific tool that you're building or, or app and, and you're kind totally. of off to the races. So yeah, I think, I think it's, it's really just about, yeah. And, and I think Ben, Ben from MakerPad talks about this uh, quite a bit is just like, doesn't matter what you use like it's just about being able to get your idea out there and to get people to be able to use your idea and I really I really like that that line of thinking totally yeah I I remember um, after we pivoted 60 my startup before uh, I joined Lambda we were we like went back to the drawing board and we're figuring stuff out and it just kind of organically evolved that we turn G sheets into a database. And the way that we had like 200 freelancers on it was that we cloned G sheets 200 times and import range them all together. And it was just this complete mess. Um, 
but yeah, like it, it was also interesting because we were actually on a rail stack and had bootstrap in the front end. And it was still the case where like, <laughs> like you just couldn't beat the rail stack. Cause we, we were like trying to build this matchmaking algorithm and this, this, yeah, the, this feature that was better than any freelance marketplace. And we were like, okay, what does the data set have to be to make that happen? And like, we just didn't know. And we didn't even know freelancers would give us the data, like, because it was a lot of data. And we were like, are they going to input all this? And the way that we iterated was just G sheets. One day we were just like, we were just like, hmm, why don't we just see if they'll give us the data? And we just sent it out to like five freelancers, made this five copies of a G sheet. And then we like connected them all together and like set up, the base of the algorithm in G sheets. And it was just like, you know, and it, and it worked. And then we were like, well, let's, you know, let's collect more data from each one and then let's like send it out to more. And then, and then next thing you know, it, it's like, it was this whole thing. And, but at that time it was, it was different from the first migration from no code to code that we had. We're like, we knew we were going to code, we could plan it. And, and the whole team saw the value of the no code stack versus like, initially it was, there was kind of this tension of like, like with engineering, just being like, yeah, no code just sucks all around, and and I'm like, no, it's pretty good. But they didn't, but he didn't see it, so it was like, you know, how would you know? But then the second time, it was like, there's just no way we could have like experimented like that in Rails. Like, um, but but it was awesome that we could just rebuild everything fast in Rails and like set up all the, the database, uh, set, set up the whole data model, and like you know import import all the data back. Um, but yeah, I just it like talking about like technical debt broadly. Like even if you're in code, you're still you're still going to be creating tons of tech debt, and and not like you know hard hard coding models and stuff. Just like coding an array in instead of um you know like another model where you're like associating data points. Yeah, there's like all sorts of things you'll do there that you like you'll have to refactor. I think the thing that makes no code to code migrations uniquely hard is that. It's, it's kind of like you mentioned at the start where you have the operations team building the no code and then the, the engineering team doesn't really know what it is. So like there's this kind of like gap of information where, where one doesn't know the, the other and then like the, the ops team isn't like setting it up properly to like migrate easily and um, yeah, all those kind of things. Yeah, it is. I, th I think that's a good point that you bring up is that whether you're building with code or no code, there's still going to be technical debt. It's just that no code is a little bit of a different kind of technical debt. And a lot of it does stem from the fact that the engineering team doesn't have as much visibility into what's going on or how things are happening. And I think part of that can be alleviated by having someone on the operations team who, or, or, or having a really good product manager maybe, or someone on the operations team who can do a really good job at creating the documentation at a granular enough level that the, that the engineering team can really understand what's happening. Because I think a lot of times people who don't understand code or how coding works, they don't understand all of the intricacies of what needs to be conveyed to the engineering team to build or to to recreate what has been built in no code. And so that's where you start running into those issues of, of the engineering team is building something, but it's not good enough for the operations team because they can't do X, Y, and Z. And those are things that they, they didn't really explain well enough in the, in the process of planning this migration. And 
we ran into that at, at Lambda School some sometimes where we would build this thing where we're like, okay, now we're going to be able to get off of Airtable for this task. And then when we would give it to the operations team, they they couldn't they couldn't do this one thing that they really needed to do because in Airtable it was sort of like a like a no-brainer. They could just go in and, and change it, but now we didn't have a way for them to easily edit this one field or something like that. So it's it's definitely something that you have to think about. And so having having someone who really understands the operations but can understand the technical side as well and and can be sort of that translator or that mediator. So I think a lot of times that falls on product people to do that. But if you don't have like a good product person in your org, uh, that that's where you can start to really run into into some of these issues when you're when you're doing these migrations. Yeah, it's it's awesome to hear your perspective about like okay, if if like it was a perfect world and you could go back like two years ago and plan the perfect like scaling and migration strategy, like how you would do it. Um, yeah, I mean, as a side note, like like at sixty when we were migrating, it was like three people compared to Lambda, it was like one fifty. Um, and we had the same issue of like feature not having feature parity in the code version. It was it was like just tiny little details of things that would just get even missed from the product spec or like just missing communication or like the engineering team just wouldn't understand how like this one easy to engineer feature that seemed meaningless was like super important. And then also in no code, it's like you can build features so fast that it's like, and and they're, yeah, there's a little more sophisticated in some, some areas where like to get that per, like perfect feature parity in code, it's just, it's like twice as much work as getting like 90% of it the way there. Mm-hmm. It's, it seems like also a challenge. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about like even more broadly, like what, if, if you were like planning everything perfectly and like, um, kind of laid the uh, the migration playbook like right out of the gate. How you would how you would do things? If that's a good question. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so it's something I've talked about with one of our early engineers, and I think the biggest thing that we would have we would have probably changed or done differently was being much more careful about our data model in in um, Airtable and and not giving as much freedom to people to change that. Um, because what, what happens is when you start wanting to change to a code base, it's not as simple as just, you know, saying this is our data model in Airtable, let's build that in Postgres and then just transfer the data over one-to-one. But, but the engineers see the data model that currently lives in Airtable and as it exists now and say, well, this isn't ideal. We should probably... Um, refactor this, we should abstract this out into its own table and this out into its own table and these should be you know, many to one relationships, et cetera. And, and, and they rebuild the data model and then it becomes a lot more complex of a process to change the data as it currently lives in Airtable to be how it, to look how it should in Postgres. And then additionally to make sure that all of the processes that are currently happening on the operational side of things or are working properly and what things need to get updated and what data needs to get pulled for what users. And so it just becomes a lot more complex and it's not just an easy, well, let's just take away have an air table and put it into Postgres. It's going to solve the yeah. problem for us. Yeah. It's like, you can improve the system so much. So you're going to want to like rethink through it. Not yeah, Not let the like ops team architect of data models 
then migrate into code for the engineering yeah. team to use. Like it makes no sense to do it that way. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm realizing I uh, I I even missed before uh, asking you like. So when was it that you you were like okay now we actually have to start planning to migrate like was it was it at that point where like Airtable just started kind of freezing up and and slowing down? So so like I said earlier, the first one was really getting off of Typeform and and giving a more branded experience for people mm-hmm. while we moved to a different form solution, right? So WordPress is used by whatever large percentage of the internet for for blogs and uh, communities yeah. and that kind of thing. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a MySQL database. So it's, it's got opportunity to be scalable there. That was one of the first things where we were like, okay, we need to have a little bit better of a solution for this. And then I think the next big one, yeah, was that Airtable move where it was really becoming unusable, not even just for the operations team, but for the students as well, when we would have them submit their weekly assignments on on Fridays, it was everyone was hitting the Airtable base at the same time trying to submit these forms. And there would be issues with the forms loading because we were using Airtable forms and the the um, the TAs were trying to submit reviews for their students at the same time and they the forms would load or they would take minutes to load and students obviously that's not we don't want them to have that kind of experience. We want to have a, a a really good experience for them as they're going through school. And it just became something that we, we realized was not good enough and we needed to do something different. We need to make it a great experience for them. They don't, they shouldn't be frustrated by this. This is something that we can solve. And so that's when we really started speeding up the process of, of moving onto more code and less of code. Yeah. When, when was that, that, um, that you started just actively being like, all right, we need to like push the code. Honestly, I don't remember. I feel like it's something that we talked about a lot, uh, pretty much the whole time I was there. Right. Because we always had this, here's, here's the ideal experience that we want to offer to students. How can we get there? And a lot of the things that we wanted to do, we first, we would always start by looking at third party tools or, or, applications to see if we could get something off the shelf. But in a lot of cases, what we were doing at Lambda School is is, is very different from what other people are doing. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so there just aren't tools out there that, that would work in the way that we wanted them to. And so we had to, we had to think about custom code, custom application. Um, one thing that I, that I did forget to mention is in the admissions team, we actually did move off of Google Sheets and Airtable and that kind of stack a little bit earlier and we moved on to Salesforce to manage mm-hmm. to manage the application and admissions process. So mm-hmm. we would take we would use Zapier to take the application information from Typeform or from Gravity Forms and push that into Salesforce. And then our admissions team would work out of Salesforce and we're still on Salesforce today and I think we're still going to use Salesforce in some aspect of Lambda School for, for probably a while to come. Mm-hmm. Just because that's that's another one where it's very scalable, right? I mean, so many companies use Salesforce, so many companies that are much bigger than us use Salesforce, but it still comes with its own with its own issues 
right? We're having to pull data from the Salesforce API and we're limited on the number of API calls that we can do on a daily basis. And uh, we're looking in, into uh, tools like, what's the bi uh, bi-directional syncing tool for- um, Jeez. For, for Salesforce. Salesforce and Postgres. I don't, I don't know. I can't remember the name of it now, but but that's that's something that we're exploring and we're we're looking to to set up so that we can have have that bi-directional real-time sync between Salesforce and Postgres so that we can then actually just work directly from a Postgres database instead of having to call the Salesforce API and we can we can use Salesforce as a as a front end for our admissions team and now people on our on our outcomes team use it as well. And so there's there's a lot of stuff there that you start getting into that becomes much more of technical problems that engineers are are a little bit more used to solving and, and working within. Yeah, yeah, totally. That, that makes sense. Yeah, this this is all awesome. Um, yeah, I'll I'll save uh, kind of like I was telling you beforehand. I'll, I want to have a part two of this um, with some of the engineering team that was like doing the migrations and get into like the tactics of how um, just how all of that went. Cause that's also so interesting. And is like, I mean, uncharted kind of like uncharted territory in the no code land that like there is no playbook for you can't find the answers to all this stuff on stack overflow. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. This, this has been awesome to hear just like all the, all the challenges um, and overcoming them throughout the scaling process and just how all those decisions were made. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure a ton of people are going to get a lot of value from this that are like, you know, like a, a few years back or like a few months back to where you guys were at that point. So the last question I have is uh, if you could wave a magic wand and like wish features into no-code tools instantly, like what would your top three be? Top three. Okay. <laughs> so I've got, I've got top two that that are like things I'm always thinking about, right? And one of them is what we've talked about earlier, which is just the the workflow in no-code tools being a little bit more similar to how developers work, where you can have mm-hmm. a staging, a development, a staging, and a production environment and easily, easily launch a staging into a production with no downtime and that kind of thing. I think that's one thing that would be awesome in a lot of the no-code tools. The second one, uh, and this is this is one where I think standard library actually has a little bit of 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 uh, of an advantage, and they do some of this kind of stuff. But I'd love to see in some of the tools like Bubble or or Boundless these sort of all-in-one tools that are meant to allow you to build like an entire application just using that one tool, but to then allow for exposing APIs for third parties to use in a very, in a very simple way so that I could, I could build this application and then also offer APIs that other developers could hit to build tools on top of what I've built. Um, that's something that I, I was looking for previously when I was trying to build a tool with my brother and maybe, maybe I just didn't find the right tool or I didn't understand how to do it, but that was something that I felt like was missing and it's a little bit more of an advanced feature that I think a lot of people probably won't be using, but was one that I thought would be, would be really interesting and help bring in the more technical side of people to be able to build on top of some of these no code platforms. Um, and for a third one, 
it doesn't have to be a feature either. It could just be a general upgrade. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing that I really like about about a lot of the no-code tools is the ease of building user interfaces. It's like Webflow, right? They've they've done an amazing job with this, and that's that was the first real meaty feature that they were even building as a company to to easily create these user interfaces. And I think that's that's one thing. But if you could take this ease of creating the user interfaces and then um, put it on top of something like uh, like a Firebase or or a, a, a more scalable database that people are using. I think that that's that's something that's really interesting because then you can take someone that has more of that technical ability and um, match them with someone who's maybe not as technical and have good scalability. And I think I actually saw someone recently writing about using Webflow with Firebase, but I, I, I don't know if it's something people have really um, have really dived into and have really explored fully, but I think that could be something that's really powerful as people start figuring out how to make that work better. That's really interesting. Yeah, there was a tool that I saw the other day called um, UI Bakery. It was just like this, and actually... Um, it was Matt Spector who told me about this. He was like, have you seen uh, UI Bakery's uh, one of the Lambda front-end engineers? And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Because it's, it's, they literally uh, describe themselves as Webflow for web apps. And okay, you can strap so it up to any database. Them, but that, that seems yeah. like the kind of thing that I'm, that I'm talking about. It's, it's interesting because it's marketed to devs. I was also like, how have I not heard about this? But it's like, it's marketed to devs, which is this whole other interesting area that's like no-code tools for devs, <laughs> you know, which are kind of low-code tools. But yeah, I, I didn't see as much. I haven't seen as much of that in the past or like maybe I just haven't, I know it hasn't been on my radar for whatever reason, but it sounds exactly like what you're describing. Um, cool, I'll have to check yeah, them out. Yeah, you'll have, to, you'll have to check it out. But yeah, this has been awesome having you on. Um, I think a lot of people are going to get a ton of value from all this whole conversation. And um yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing your whole your whole no code story about growing Lambda School. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you, David. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll include links to any of the tools that we spoke about here in the show notes. To keep up with the no code and code conversation, you can follow me on Twitter at, at underscore David Head. That's at underscore D-A-V-I-D-H-E-A-D. This podcast was created by my company Bridge and Content Allies. I want to tell you a little bit about Bridge for a moment. I created Bridge because I don't want to see any more companies stop growing because their no-code tools stop scaling. I personally scaled a lot of these tools to the limit and migrated to code many times over. At the Y Combinator-backed startup that I founded and other teams that I've been a part of, advised, and interviewed. I want to help share the insights that I've learned over the last few years with you now. To do this, my team and I at Bridge have created a free assessment for you to get personalized insights on when your stack will stop scaling and an action plan on what to do to migrate including strategies for success, pitfalls to avoid, and new tools to use. To be clear, we're not sending you a blog post or anything. This is specific insights tailored to your exact stack, your company details, and how much traction you have. So if you're growing on no-code, I highly recommend taking this to get ahead of the curve. You can take the free assessment at www.bridge.so scale. That's www.bridge.so scale. So why is the assessment free? It's free because it helps us give back to the community, but it also helps us know which other pieces of content that we need to create, in addition to which other products, services, and features need to exist to make this no-code movement more successful. 
So I'll also be selecting 10 out of the first 100 submissions to set up one-on-one -on -one calls with, where you can ask me any questions that you want about how to be more successful with no-code tools. Again, the URL for the assessment is www.bridge.so slash scale. That's www.bridge.so slash S-C-A-L-E. And before we head out, I want to give another shout out to Content Allies for helping us launch this podcast. Content Allies turn CEOs into thought leaders through content marketing. They interview you via video and then turn that interview into video clips, articles, podcasts, and social posts. They're the team that powers all the content that we do here at Bridge and this podcast that you're listening to. You can learn more and reach out to them at contentallies.com. That's C-O-N-T-E-N-T-A-L-L-I-E-S dot com.